Welcome to International Podcast Month for IPM. IPM 2020 is brought to you by the organizational team, Anne, Cole, Tess, and Theron. A very special thank you to all of our participants, without whom this event wouldn't be possible. And now, on to the episode. Welcome to another Creator Conversation episode. This is Tess Kokyo, and today I am so excited to close out our third year of International Podcast Month by sharing with you my interview with Ella Watts, podcast producer and consultant, historian, presenter, and so much more. As with every Creator Conversation episode, I'm going to draw you into the episode with the trailer for The Orphans, for which Ella is the executive producer, so that you can get an idea of her work before we jump into a conversation about the media industry and more. We are about to have a lovely landing. How do we crash? I can't remember. No, me neither. I can't remember anything. So no one remembers anything. Those things are going to come back and they're going to kill us in our sleep. We need to go! Run! Just go! Right, everyone get behind me. We're leaving. If you get in my way, I will end you. Get off of him, Nora. Hello. How can I be of service? The Orphans Crash. Search The Orphans in your podcatcher of choice. Hello, Ella. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hello, Tess. Thank you very much for having me. What the listeners don't know is we've already been talking for probably like an hour and a half. (laughs) All of the best stuff happens off mic, uh, and, you know, it sucks for you that you didn't get that, but, you know, me and Tess have that, and that's what's important. (laughs) We have that experience, (laughs) but now you get this experience. (laughs) (laughs) Which is new and delightful and interesting and exciting in in different ways. Exactly. So, Ella, let's start off. Tell me a little bit about you and the work that you do, and then we'll jump into all of the fun questions and podcasting conversation. Alrighty, so I am a podcast producer. I work at BBC Studios, which is a TV and audio production company. Um, And in addition to that, in my free time, I am also a kind of audio fiction advocate and consultant is generally how I describe it because it's difficult to describe. Um, I have done consultancy work with uh, broadcast networks like BBC Sounds. Um, I've also lectured around the UK and appeared on panels and spoken at festivals around the world. And what's I've also worked on a number of independent um, podcasts, including Wooden Overcoats, The Unseen Hour, and The Orphans, uh, for which I am still an executive producer. Ella, how did you get started in the podcast world and what moved you into uh, working for BBC Sound? So I originally got into student radio at university and I just started volunteering with a community radio station uh, where I presented a drive time show with lots of um, indie rock and indie pop and I called it Biscuit. I'm not really sure why now 20 year old Ella is a mystery to me, but I just really, really, really loved radio and making radio. And from there, I kind of worked really hard to try and do more of it. So I 
ended up doing some work with kind of a local regional branch of the BBC and then I moved, I worked for a magazine for a bit and then I moved again and I started volunteering at a different community radio station in Bristol where I did a lot of different work. I presented and did the news for the kind of southwest of England's biggest LGBT plus a radio show called Shout Out. I also produced a breakfast show from 5 till 9am in the morning and I produced and presented on an arts show called the Saturday Edition on Saturdays. So I just never really slept. (laughs) (laughs) And then Shout Out, the queer show that I worked on, uh, was nominated in for a British Podcast Award in the inaugural year for the British Podcast Awards as a current affairs program that specialised in news for the LGBT plus community. And that was pretty cool. And from there, I kind of saw this wonderful, wild world of podcasts and realised that like I wasn't alone in kind of, you know, listening to audio drama, obviously Welcome to Night Vale, but also like The Thrilling Adventure Hour and Will 359 and Saya and The Bright Sessions. And it turned out that like, people who liked podcasts didn't exist exclusively on the internet they were also like real people who I could see and meet (laughs) in real life which was wild uh and so I did some research and found out that in the UK at least one of the kind of uh um not sure how to phrase it I suppose one of the more secure or like easier I put in inverted commas roots to get into the media industry was to get a qualification in media So I took out a very substantial loan because I do not have lots of money and I moved to London by myself to do a master's degree in radio at the University of Goldsmiths. And whilst I was living in London, I was working part time to like pay my fees and pay my living. And I also started volunteering with a number of different independent podcasts. So I was a runner on season three of Wooden Overcoats and got to know all the people there. And then I started producing a monthly live horror comedy radio drama called The Unseen Hour from a small theatre in London called The Rosemary Branch. Um, And so every month I would go record that and then produce it into a couple of episodes. And then I also started working on The Orphans as a dialogue editor. And then once I was kind of working across these various podcasts, I started kind of meeting more podcast people. And I got involved with a couple of different kind of audio, like professional communities in the UK, including the Podcasters Support Group and the UK Audio Network. And through that, I ended up meeting some people who worked for BBC Sounds, which at the time was just about to launch. Um, So this was back in just before November 2018. And they needed someone who knew about audio drama. And I was the nerd who on my MA in radio had volunteered and written an entire like mini lecture, including a PowerPoint about modern audio drama because I was (laughs) upset that my classmates didn't know more about it. So I met um, Jason Phipps, who's the commissioner or one of the commissioners for BBC Sounds. And he said, would you like to do that PowerPoint for the BBC? And I said, yes. And he said, we'll give you money. And I said, great, I would have done it anyway, but cool. Thank you very much. (laughs) And he gave me some money and I wrote a 10 year, very rough overview of the kind of last 10 years in the English language independent audio drama industry, which is still available as like a little BBC Sounds audio drama report, which three quarters of which has never been published. Like only a quarter of it was actually published. And I always feel it's important to disclaim that. And then kind of from that, some people became like aware of my work and I ended up kind of giving a similar presentation to the various BBC radio networks and also a couple of like independent companies. And then I ended up 
kind of going to BBC Studios, which is this production company that I work for now, and giving them my little like lecture thing. And they hired me as a consultant to for a couple days a week to talk about audio drama specifically, which is my favorite thing to do. So I did that. And then uh, a job came up there for a podcast producer. So I applied and I got it, which was great. And now I've been there for just over a year. And my job is to both produce radio programs and also podcasts and develop kind of like explore developmental opportunities for the company, which is very corporate. Uh, but essentially just means finding creative ways for a company like BBC Studios to work in this space, which is not always as straightforward as maybe I'd want it to be because BBC Studios is actually a very big company. We make um, and we're responsible for shows like Doctor Who and Top Gear and Good Omens and trying to get a company that big with that many people to move as fast as podcasts do can sometimes be kind of like a complicated process. So part of my job is to be like, hmm, how could we do this in a way that is fun and fulfilling for all of us and doesn't make anyone cry? And, you know, sometimes I succeed. <laughs> I feel like that took a turn, but there we go. <laughs> I suppose actually this might be useful in, in terms of talking about like the media industry approaching it. Like a kind of common misconception about BBC Studios versus the BBC is the BBC is a public funded broadcast network which is paid for by British taxpayers and is a not-for-profit organisation. And the not-for-profit part is really fundamental to like the organization's founding principles, which is that it cannot, in theory, be influenced by any individual or business or corporation. So like no one can buy advertising on the BBC and like you can't pay for a news story on the BBC. The point where that gets murky is when you get to BBC content outside of the UK. Outside of the UK, you can get advertising on, on the BBC. And whilst the BBC has to clearly disclose like whether or not there's been a sponsor involved or whether or not there's an individual who's like given money to whatever the program or content is once it becomes like international content it is like monetizable content but it still is ultimately belongs to and is commissioned by the British Broadcasting Corporation which is the BBC that like we know and are familiar with. BBC Studios is a production company that was founded by the BBC over 50 years ago to provide in-house television and audio content for the BBC and the idea was that they could use it as a way to like train up new and interesting talent um who like private production companies might not employ because they weren't like commercially viable in inverted commas but you could also use it as a way to like make programs more cheaply or more quickly like if you had like a I don't know like a, a festival or a special event and BBC Radio 4 really wants a series and they can just get their people in-house to make like something just really quickly ad hoc for like as cheaply as possible. Then a couple years ago, that changed and BBC Studios became a private commercial corporate entity. So it's not paid for by taxpayers, it's paid for by commercial profits, and it's responsible for like a select portfolio of things, most of which have been broadcast on the BBC, but we are not responsible for everything that goes out on the BBC. Okay. So I know that that's kind of like a weirdly complicated explanation but I hope it makes sense. No that that absolutely makes sense. So you have been involved in the media industry for a while. You've got a load of experience. One of the things you're here today to talk about is pitching ideas to the media industry and how to approach commissioners. Talk to me a little bit about how you pitched your first idea and what you've 
learned and grown since then? And what sorts of pieces of advice can you pass on to the listeners? This is so interesting because now you've asked it and and I signed up to to talk about this. I I I don't actually know what the first thing I pitched was. Hum. I mean, okay, so I I suppose I've got two answers and feel free to pick either or leave both in. It's up to you. Um <laughs> one is slightly more flippant, but it was important to me at the time. Um a couple years ago, when I was working in community radio, I was working on a queer podcast called Shout Out, and they have a team of presenters and producers. And I had only recently joined that team as a volunteer, and I really wanted to do a series on uh, queer history. At the time, like I am a historian, and at the time, I had become just really interested in a couple of different queer historical figures, and I thought that it would be kind of relevant to the program's audience and especially because Shout Out is a kind of queer community program that had been going on for more than a decade a lot of its listeners were kind of older members of the community who don't and and didn't have the same access to information that I feel sometimes like younger members of the queer community have and don't even realize we have just like just generally like google ninja skills mean that we know and have access to a little bit more information about queer history access to podcasts gives us access to information about queer history that a lot of people who listen to like local community radio and are like maybe older members of the community don't have. So I wanted to kind of be like, hey guys, like, did you know it's like relatively common knowledge that Shakespeare was like hella bi? Um, or have you heard of Julie Daubigny? There was a bisexual sword fighting opera singer in the 1700s in France. Isn't that fun? So I kind of wrote up a couple of the individuals that I wanted to talk about and pitched it to the team on the show and was like, you know, like, I'd really like to do this. This is why just anecdotally from conversations with people who listen to our show, I don't think that people actually know this. And I think it would be really important for them to know. And I think it would be meaningful. This is how long I think it'll take. And yeah. And luckily I was working on a community radio show and they were really keen to kind of help people develop their skills and confidence. And so they were happy to just let me have a go. So I wrote a little script and they gave me a section in the program and uh, and we developed it from there. And what was quite nice was that like as time went on, we kind of brought in more bits. So like when we did the Shakespeare segment, we had like a recital of a poem and I did a bit about King Christina of Sweden and we included some more stuff about kind of like gender in the show as a whole and talking about like transgender and gender fluid and just generally gender different identities. So in a lot of ways, that was like a really easy, gentle introduction to pitching an idea there wasn't any money involved um they're also like shout out is like pretty respectable as a as a brand that's been going for a while but it's not like massive there weren't millions of listeners to please or displease and it was just about experimentation and creativity but on a more formal note uh one of my first more serious pitches was uh a, was a was a failure it was a program that i pitched to bbc radio 4 and it was in response to a request from a commissioner. So what happens in the UK is that the BBC radio networks open up regular commissioning rounds, uh, which have like a certain timeline um, and they normally have specific commissioning briefs. So they will publish what they want. Um, sometimes that is only for specific production companies who are referred to as their preferred suppliers. So people they've worked with before, who they know work well, work fairly, treat their employees properly and also like tend to give them the content that they want. And so you get to become a preferred supplier and then you might be sent a brief like before it's published like to the general public. 
and you're given a brief and that brief will give you information about exactly what the network wants to put on a specific slot at a specific time on a specific station. So it'll be like BBC Radio 4 wants at 11 o'clock this kind of program tackling this kind of issue because we think this is important for the public to think about or because we think that we're not currently serving this audience so we want to make sure that we serve them. And then you write a pitch that responds to that brief, submit it through the BBC's um, commissioning portal, which is called Proteus, um, and then like kind of wait until you get a response. And then you either progress your idea further, so you kind of write a more detailed pitch, or like that's it. And for me, like in this case, like that was it. Like it died pretty early on. But the response was to a commissioning brief which said that they wanted more ideas focusing on place and more ideas thinking about the relationship between people and place, a community and place. And so I had recently become really interested in a national trust property called Sutton House, which is this um, kind of listed property that for a long time has been a real centre and like beating heart of like queer nightlife. And I thought that was really interesting. And I thought what I pitched was a programme where um, the curator of the Museum of Transology uh, basically leads the listener along with a couple of other presenters through an actual party that we would record, this was obviously pre-COVID, um, an actual party that we would record with a bunch of like queer people on a queer night out whilst talking about the history. So you could hear people laughing and dancing and you could hear the music and then you're also thinking about like what this building was like 200 years ago and 300 years ago and 400 years ago and just it was supposed to be a celebration of joy and life and the happiness that queer people have always found throughout history instead of sort of looking at the misery which tends to happen when we're talking about queer history and especially in like mainstream media which I really wanted to avoid. That sounds like an amazing idea. Thank you very like, much. I want to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Maybe maybe one day I will make it because I still would like to. Um, it made me happy. Um, I think looking back on that, like there's a couple things that are obvious to me. First of all, it's just massively expensive and complicated. And I think for a one-off program, if you've got, from a commissioning perspective, if you've got another supplier who's more experienced or a producer who's more experienced, who's got like a simple, cheap, effective idea and a good way to make a program quite quickly that it's essentially just two people in a room and they're going to ask for, you know, like half as much money as this other person who's much less experienced, who wants this really complicated, really expensive idea, then that's like a fairly easy decision to make. And I think like now looking back on it, there are a lot of things I can think about with that pitch that I would change to streamline it, to make it more cost effective, to make it look a little bit less scary, I think, at first glance to a commissioner and kind of be like, you know... <laughs> I know this seems wild, but I promise it is not actually going to require, you know, millions of pounds and months of work. But yeah, but I, but I think that there's still something at the heart of it that's useful. And I think that that's a, also a, I think, a lesson worth taking, which is that you're going to pitch a thousand things a thousand different ways, if not substantially more. But you, there's, it's always worth kind of keeping old pictures in your back pocket because you can recycle them and there will be a time when they'll be useful again because stories are cyclical and repetitive like that. There'll be a year when everyone wants a spooky story about ghosts and there'll be a year when everyone wants a cosmic horror and there'll be a year when everyone wants a story about cannibalism and then we'll go back to a spooky story about ghosts. I am thinking about spooky things because it's Halloween. Well, it's not Halloween, but it's Halloween season. Um, yes, absolutely. <laughs> I'm sorry, does that answer your question? I realize I rambled. No, I think that does. Absolutely. 
That's really interesting that you make a point to say, like, keep your old pitches because they may still be wanted. Now just might not be the right time. Yeah, I mean, exactly. It, it makes me think of every industry, right? Like music goes through phases where one style is the current popular style. Fashion goes through that same kind of cyclical thing, you know, like where you start to see older fashions repeated um, and becoming new again, or at least elements of those things. So the elements of your story may still be something that is sought after at a later point. Yeah, and I think just like keeping a notebook of them and not sort of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, like I am not, but you might be. Um, you know, Neil Gaiman kind of talks about stuff like the fact that no one wanted to publish Coraline. And then 15 years later, everyone wanted to publish Coraline because suddenly it was very of the moment. And I think that that's a really important thing to bear in mind when you're working in any area of the media industry, which is that what feels zeitgeisty now will not feel zeitgeisty in like six months. I mean, anything that was developed pre-COVID does not feel appropriate now. And so there's always going to, like, things are always going to change. The socio-political landscape is always going to change. And therefore, audience demands and therefore commissioner demands are always going to change. But ultimately, you know, cycles repeat themselves. We do kind of come back to the same patterns over and over and over again. And so an idea that you had in like the 1990s might be super relevant to the 2010s if you change some of the details. And in the same vein or in the same spirit, like something in the tw developed in the 2020s might end up being super, super relevant and resonant in the 2030s uh, if you sort of take it out of its bo box and dust it off and give it a bit of a scrub. So yeah, don't throw away ideas, but at the same time, be willing to move on and be willing to let go and don't do them to death. Let let them rest for a bit and then bring them out again. What do you think is the most challenging part about pitching? So I have a friend who's an actor and a writer who hates the entire pitching process with like a real, real venom. Um, and I think that he's right in that the biggest problem with pitching is pitching has nothing to do with creativity. It is a sales process. It is advertising. I often flippantly refer to myself as a double glazing salesman or a used car salesman because that is what I feel like. A lot of the time a pitch is about writing very persuasively and concisely about what an idea could be rather than what an idea is. And I think that a really big challenge that a lot of the people I work with have, um, and when I say people I work with, I mean like the writers and artists who I would develop an idea with is kind of letting go of their idea and kind of allowing that their beautiful, intricate, nuanced, original 20 part drama, I am going to boil down to, okay, imagine if it was like Bend It Like Beckham meets Dickinson and that's it. And I, because it's my job as a producer, who is walking into a meeting or emailing a commissioner who is very, very busy, who gets a lot of stories thrown at them all the time, who is basically constantly at saturation point. It is my job to hold their attention for five minutes or less, make them interested in an idea and interested enough that they remember when I follow up with them the next time I speak to them or that they are interested enough that when I put my submission through whatever portal they have, they remember it and they're like, oh yeah, that was cool. And so I think for me, sometimes the hardest part of pitching is finding a way to 
transform something really gorgeous and complex and intricate into a simple, quick punch of, you know, this feels like I just shot caffeine into your veins. Oh my god, that's so cool. I want to remember it. Oh, it's just like X. Oh, it's just like that. Oh, it'll make me feel this way. Okay, great. Rather than, like, allowing any of that, like, kind of slow burn. Because the problem is that if you've got someone who in that day has already read 17 different pitches and some of those pitches included like 110 page scripts and then they get to yours and it's 12 pages and then it's an extremely detailed series outline they are half asleep by page two their heart is in their shoes by page four and by page 12 they want to die and it doesn't matter how good the idea is they're just exhausted so kind of having to confront that reality and then find ways to circumvent it can definitely be pretty challenging but on the other hand it could also be a fun challenge because you get to think about like what comparison would you make and bend it like Beckham meets Dickinson is in my opinion a good one <laughs> I like that what advice would you have for podcasters and creators who are wanting to make the move from like a more indie self-published in their home or with a smaller group of friends or a smaller network to pitching to a larger podcast network or uh, or radio production company? So my first big piece of advice is no one is going to acquire your podcast. That might seem kind of depressing, but it's okay. <laughs> Everything's going to be okay. So kind of actually, you know, I mean, the fundamental piece of advice is subscribe to Pod News Hot Pod and Inside Podcasting, listen to Servant of Pod, listen to like the um well listen to radio drama revival just because it's wonderful um but listen to things like the media show um and just generally try and consume media news and podcast news to get an understanding of how the podcast industry looks and also to develop your own opinion because i'm going to tell you mine and you might disagree and please disagree you're welcome to but just form your own opinions based on current news about the industry and the landscape that we're living in but from there no one's going to acquire your podcast and the reason that I am fairly certain no one's going to acquire your podcast, at least in the UK, is just from conversations I've had with commissioners um, and also the current kind of information that they're publishing themselves. But also just looking at the way the podcast land works, it doesn't really make sense for Spotify or Audible or the BBC or, you know, any other state uh, broadcasting corporation to acquire your podcast unless they think that your podcast is going to bring them a substantial influx of listeners to their platform or to their content which means that you have to be able to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with their most successful content so if you're looking at Spotify that's like Joe Rogan if you're looking at the BBC that's things like I mean for us it's kind of different depending on the country but like things like the Today program or World Service News if you're looking at Audible then you're looking at like the entire back catalogue of Audible all of those things are accessing millions and tens of millions of people every week. So if your podcast doesn't have download figures in the millions for every episode, you're not adding anything to that company. And so they're not going to give you that money when they could give it to someone else who could do that and does have that and is bringing that. And that is depressing, but unfortunately it is true. In a world where we have, um, I believe we must have crossed a million podcasts by now, we're certainly crossing 100,000 new podcasts uploaded every month. What you bring to a commissioner is not existing IP that they then have to license, which adds additional costs and complications, and is outside of what their editorial strategy and what their audience strategy is. 
they have a specific audience they're trying to reach. They have a commercial imperative they're trying to fulfill. They have an editorial strategy that they're aiming towards. And you made your podcast without thinking about any of that, which is great because you were making it for yourself. But there's no reason then for them to buy that from you because what they're buying from you is a product that doesn't actually fit them, that isn't as good as what they have already, that isn't as good as what else they could buy for the same money. And it's also now going to be extremely complicated for them to try and make any money out of. They are not going to acquire your podcast. That's not going to happen. What can happen, because I realised that was kind of harsh. So just to lift things up again. What can happen and and what is useful to do is to think of your podcast as an amazing business card. Your podcast reflects whatever you do, whether it's writing or acting or sound design or production work. Your podcast illustrates what an amazing professional you are and why you would be a fantastic person to collaborate with. It also, to an extent, de-risks you in inverted commas. Like a big problem the media industry has had for a long time now is that everyone is frightened of big expensive failures. So they never work with anyone who's inexperienced because people who are inexperienced feel more risky than people who have already made like three blockbuster films or who have already made a bunch of TV shows that everyone loves. So then kind of the problem that we have is like lack of originality and new voices and creativity, new voices from new perspectives, but also just new stories because the media industry gets caught in a bit of a catch-22. Well, if we give money to this new writer, then they might not make a hit. If they don't make a hit, then we lose a bunch of money. If we lose a bunch of money, we can't pay more people to do more things. Okay, so what we'll do is we'll work with someone who's already big. Oh, but that same person that we've worked with for 25 years actually doesn't have any more new ideas. Hmm, well, you know, the solution would be to work with a new person. Hmm, but if we work with a new person, they might fail and then we'd lose money. You see where I'm going with this. So what making a podcast does is it shows them that you won't automatically fail. If you do have a couple thousand listeners, if you have people who are backing you on Patreon, if you have people who are paying for your stuff on Kickstarter, you can say, look, people already want to give me money to do this. People are already listening. I already have an audience. I am not risky. I'm not someone who's come out of nowhere. I have evidence here. I have social media testimonials. I have reviews that people really like my work. And here's a brand new idea that no one's ever heard of that I've made just for you. And it can be yours for the low, low price of X thousand dollars. Um, so I think like having a podcast is a great thing to have as a media professional and it will help you sell new ideas. But my first and biggest piece of advice to people working in podcast land, especially audio drama creators, is do not build your strategy around the idea that one day someone will buy your existing show and make it into something. Because that's quite unlikely. What's much more likely is that people will hear your existing show, love it, and say, okay, what else have you got? And that's what you need ready. It's the what else have you got? I think that's really great advice because I think that sometimes there's there's that worry that like I have to make this thing be successful and, and not just be successful in terms of like, you know, I was able to keep this show from going in the red in terms of I was able to pay, you know, my producer, my, you know, actors, etc. And we were able to be successful in the sense of completing it and having people love it just generally like, but There's a fear of, well, I need to get millions of downloads and I need to get that advertising money and I need to and I need to and I need to like hit it big from the start. So I really love that advice of 
treating a podcast like uh, a notch on your resume, a notch on your business card of saying, look at what I can do. I have more ideas. Yeah. And I think like it is important. It's a bit of a gifted child thing, right? Which is like, we, we want our first thing to be perfect and there's no failure. And it's also the best thing that's ever happened. And it doesn't need any improvement. And thank you very much, but this is my magnum opus and that's it. And it's really tempting to fall into that trap and it's really hard not to. And to an extent, like all of us are always to some extent going to fall into that because we emotionally hopefully care about what we're doing. And so of course we want it to go well. Of course we want people to like it. Of course we want people to care. But you have to be kind to yourself and also pragmatic with yourself that if you want to be a professional, if you want this to be your job, then you have to understand that this is just one project. This is just project one. And you are going to have to do hundreds, if not thousands more to make a career out of this, which means it's important to care, but it's also important to know when to let go and move on. And once you're giving yourself some breathing space, it's important to look back and be like, okay, like I could learn this from that. Like, I think like this was cool, but like this could have been different or like maybe I would change that now or whatever. You take that into your next project and then you really love that and you want everyone to think it's perfect and it's the best thing ever. And then that's done and then you move on and you look back and you go okay that worked this didn't okay I'll take those things and then you do your next thing like people don't emerge into the media world with like the sudden perfect screenplay or the sudden perfect book or the sudden perfect podcast like it's that's a massive massive myth every single creative person that you admire was already doing creative things before they made the thing that you love like Neil Gaiman was doing a lot of different writing before he ever got his first paid writing work. Fink and Craner were members of a comedy troupe. They were already pr professional creatives before they made Welcome to Night Vale. Welcome to Night Vale didn't just come out of the air. It came out of a thriving New York comedy scene, which is great. But it's also like, it's important for you to be kind to yourself and not expect yourself to suddenly birth Welcome to Night Vale unless you've got 10 years of professional comedy and a bunch of contacts in your back pocket which you might not do. And that's okay because you've got time. You need to be realistic with yourself and kind to yourself. I think it's also important to note that not everybody has to, how do I say this nicely? I want to say not everybody has to make it big um, <laughs> because I really do believe that there's so much value in the indie and small productions that don't go big. Like they, they create a beautiful community uh, of listeners and creatives that, I think needs to exist both for the beginner and for the experienced creator. I think that's something that sometimes is um, forgotten. I think like it's, you know, Alexander Dana made a comparison between indie podcasts and comic books. And that's one of my favorite comparisons. Um, I also think like it is absolutely easy to draw a comparison between indie podcasts and indie music, but to go to comic books as an example, like, Mainstream comic books do not erase the existence of indie comic books. And also indie comic books are where a lot of the really interesting creativity and passion projects come from and get published and get made. And like indie comic projects are so like varied and, and beautiful and infinitely varied and infinitely beautiful. And like the audio fiction community, often significantly more diverse when it comes to the like demographic diversity of their creators and their content than mainstream comics and inverted commas and 
the fact that that indie comic scene exists and is competing with mainstream comics pushes mainstream comics to try and diversify their content, both in terms of original ideas, in terms of the people working on them, and in terms of the people they're representing. And you can see that with like big um, publishers like Marvel and DC, who you know take a lot of cues from, and also literally creators from publishers like Image and IDW. And I think like in podcast land, similar thing in in audio drama especially like that we saw Gimlet, for example, make Homecoming, and that was a great show, although I will somewhat contentiously continue to maintain that it was in many ways a failure, <laughs> which you can ask me about over a beer. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, you had Co- Homecoming, which was great, but was very much like what we already saw on TV, was very straight, was largely very white, and was quite kind of boring in inverted commas. I mean, it was boring in, in terms of what it did in terms of representation. And then, like, much later, we see Gimlet make something like The Two Princes, which went down really well online and was so much more diverse. It's gay Disney movie and also multicultural and also has a bunch of people, like, doing a bunch of fun kind of stuff in the woods with lots and lots of money, yes, but is responding to a demand for, like, diverse representation. And that demand for diverse representation is illustrated by the indie audio drama community and proven by the indie audio drama community. The fact that people would stop listening to Homecoming and go and listen to like the Magnus archives shows that what the audience actually wanted was like queer love stories and queer representation, which forces mainstream bigger publishing houses, commissioners to answer that demand because ultimately all they actually care about is getting people to listen to their stuff. And so if what people are listening to, if what podcast listeners are listening to, if what audio drama listeners are listening to is like drama with a bunch of queer characters, then they will make drama with a bunch of queer characters. In a lot of ways, the indie audio drama, the smaller audio dramas, this like amazing, flowering, beautiful field of ideas, like we're the tastemakers and that's pretty awesome. And it means that we have this like power over a cultural conversation that we are having with ourselves, which does have resonance internationally and in the global media scene, which might not always come with, you know, the accolades and money and long-term salaried positions at Spotify that we might hope. Right. But we don't need that necessarily because, you know, we're all doing these things for different reasons. Like there are so many different things that a person can do with a life. And the thing that you do with your life does not have to exclusively be make one successful audio drama and nothing else for the rest of time. In fact, it probably shouldn't be. Yeah, definitely. And I th- I think you're right that the value that these communities have is shaping the future of mainstream media. Yeah, exactly. Like, And I just think that, you know, you might make a podcast and, I don't know, 10 people listen to it. And the main character of your podcast is a character that you have modelled after yourself. So they are non-binary and they're asexual and they're autistic and they have ADHD. And one person of those 10 people that listen to your show listens to that show. And that one person is maybe a friend of yours. And maybe the reason that you're friends is because you're both neurodivergent and you're both non-binary and you're both ace. And they get to listen to a show in which a person like them is the main character and also the show is not cruel to them or violent to them and it lets them be a spaceship captain and go and discover a brand new race of alien life 
and also have an amazing queer platonic romance with a really gorgeous first mate and everything is actually just sick as hell and for 20 minutes you change that person's life that is enough by itself like that's success yes a hundred percent I think that is a a beautiful spot to kind of like wrap up on. And I'm also cognizant that you need to go and eat some dinner because it's probably after 9 p.m. there. (laughs) It is quarter past nine, but it's fine. I'm sorry for rambling. (laughs) No, no, I love that. I think that's fantastic. Ella, is there anything else that you wanted to bring up or talk about or mention? I guess just kind of to boil it down into a couple of just quick kind of do's and don'ts uh do keep your pitch short make sure it is one to three pages ideally the less pages the better if it's an audio drama then you want to provide like one or two line summaries for each character one or two line summaries for each episode but i wouldn't necessarily include an episode outline on an on a first kind of introduction to a commissioner a summary roughly of the first series with a paragraph about what another series could look like Um, some information about your creative team and some information about how you're planning to market it or ways that you can see like the brand expanding because obviously if you're pitching especially to a commercial commissioner they're going to be interested in how to make money you can always meet commissioners in person or you can very often meet commissioners in person at networking events so it's worth familiarizing yourself with what events there are in your country or in your area that you can attend and especially now that you can attend them virtually see if there's any like virtual drinks or socials happening I already said subscribe to the newsletters, make sure you're up to date with news. And if you're in the UK, keep an eye out for the commissioning rounds, especially from BBC Sounds, because a lot of them are very open to a much wider range of suppliers and inverted commas than normal, which means production companies that make stuff. And it means that if you have more than one podcast feed currently open and running and that has been updating within the last couple of months, then you qualify as a supplier and you can pitch to the BBC and they might give you money to make a podcast. So do some Googling look at their commissioning guidelines, read it, familiarize yourself with it, and give it a shot. Because honestly, despite everything I've said today, and I'm aware that some of it has been <laughs> discouraging as well as encouraging, <laughs> um, like nothing can stop you. And approach everything with the confidence of a mediocre straight white man. And if you are a straight white man, I'm sure you're not mediocre because you're listening to this podcast, and that means you've got to be pretty cool. Um, <laughs> just, you know, channel the toxic masculinity of our worses and turn it into something better. Thank you so much, Ella. Where can we find you online? Where can people find your work? So you can find me at G-E-J Watts on Twitter. One day I'll open an Instagram account, but that day has not yet come. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You can find The Orphans, which is the podcast I work on, um, at Orphans Pod. Uh, We're a sci-fi audio drama, and we're currently releasing a mini-series of uh, shorts by amazing guest writers called Wild Tales, which I would love it if you checked out. Um, And if you want to contact me, uh, then you can go to my website, which you'll find most easily by going to bit.ly forward slash Ella Watts. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ella. It was wonderful having you on to talk again this year. Thank you for having me back. Um, Tess is the kindest and most patient person in the world to everyone listening. If you've worked with her, then you know this already. (laughs) Um, But thank you, Tess. Uh, Thank you. (laughs) 
The intro and outro music for all IPM episodes is composed by Benny James. Our graphic art and logo are by Matthias Grelly. You can support International Podcast Month by sharing and talking about the event, and you can even buy our team members a coffee. Links are in the show notes. Follow us at PodMonth on Twitter and use the hashtag PodMonth2020. Head on over to internationalpodcastmonth.com for the month-long blog and for more information about the event. International Podcast Month, celebrating creators, sharing listeners.